We are uh, been working our way through the Gospel of John, and next week we will be in chapter 21, which is the final chapter of John's Gospel. That is, chapter 21 is essentially uh, the epilogue to John's Gospel, sort of ties together some of the loose ends that are left when we get to John chapter 21. The real conclusion to the main body of the Gospel of John that we've been studying is, is this section we're going to look at this morning, which is the last eight verses of John chapter 20. And we know that this is sort of the, the pinnacle, the, the wrap-up point for John, if you will, because John focuses these last eight verses on what has been the overarching theme of this book that we've been seeing all along as we've been reading it. It is the, the whole purpose of his writing is stated right here, and it is not a theme that John creatively came up with on his own. It's not one that he thought of and sort of imposed on the story and thought this would be a nice theme. This is John relaying to us what it is he heard from Jesus Christ day after day after day and, and coming to this purpose in his writing his gospel that is entirely based on what he heard from Jesus Christ. Um, for example, and I'll, I want to give you just some of the statements that Jesus Christ makes about himself that are recorded in the Gospel of John and see if you, see if you catch the theme that John is bringing out to us here. John 3, 15, whoever believes in the Son of Man, which is another name for Jesus, may have eternal life. Of course, the familiar one, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5, 24, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Some of these will be up on the screen. Others, I may add a few here that are not all up on the screen, but watch for the theme here. I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 47, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 738, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 9, 35, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Eleven twenty five. outside the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then John 12, 46, so I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. Catching a theme at this point? Belief. Over and over again. This, these are not all of the verses in which Jesus speaks to the issue of belief, but it's a good chunk of them. And there are a number of other statements from John where he's not specifically quoting Jesus, but he's speaking of Jesus' teaching in the crowds, and he refers to this issue of belief, believing in Jesus nearly a hundred times. John's gospel has some reference to either belief or unbelief when it comes to Jesus Christ. Nearly a hundred times you see that word believe, and it is in this context of talking about belief in Jesus Christ. There's only three chapters in John's gospel that don't specifically use that word believe in reference to trusting or believing in Jesus Christ. And in those three chapters, it is Jesus speaking to those who are presumed to already be believers. For instance, chapter 21 that we'll look at next week as he's um, sort of commissioning and equipping those who are going to go on after him who already believe. John listened to Jesus teach day after day 
after day, in town after town, and it was very clear to John, he didn't have to think hard to see what the theme is in Jesus' teaching, what the, what the focal point is in what Jesus was saying. Jesus didn't merely want an audience. He wasn't trying to build some new philosophical system. He wasn't trying to get people simply to follow him and imitate him just because he was a good guy. The fundamental priority for Jesus was that people believe in him. And in fact, to put it more precisely, this belief is very specific. It is belief in who Jesus is, as in who he said he was, the Son of God, God in flesh. Belief in what Jesus did, in fact, what he promised he would do, and that is to die for sinners and rise again, and fundamentally believe that Jesus then has the power to give eternal life to those who believe. Who he is, what he has done, and the power he has to give eternal life are the elements of what this belief is that Jesus keeps speaking about. This issue of believing in Jesus is from his statements. It's not something that we're just sort of surmising or having to deduce. John is very much giving us what Jesus says over and over again. And so there's no room here for just some, some sort of vague, generic belief that, well, Jesus was an historic figure who came from Nazareth, some Jewish rabbi from the first century, and that's all we really know and can't really fill in a whole lot more detail than that. Because as a matter of fact, Scripture does. It doesn't give us Jesus as a blank slate that we can sort of write our cause into. You know, if, if Jesus were speaking on this issue, this is what he would do to address this cause. Well, we, we've got clear statements of what Jesus' purpose was, calling us to believe who he is, what he's done, and that he has the power to give eternal life. There was a, a, a tweet a couple days ago from a Self-described Christian minister, obviously you can find tweets on anything, but here's one from a self-described Christian minister, happened to be president of Theological Seminary, you may have seen her, some of the Christian news sites um, talked about her, she was a focal point of a New York Times story last week. She tweeted, day after Easter, she tweeted this, Jesus was executed because he stood against imperial abuses, because he took action against Rome's subjugation and brutal oppression of the Jewish people. I got to tell you, that's as, as wrong based on Scripture as it could possibly be. That's, in fact, entirely opposite of what Scripture teaches. And, and I point that out to you to say that, that we're not left sort of wondering what Jesus, why he came, what he taught, what his goal was, because it is very specific throughout Scripture. And so you can't, you can't sort of take Jesus and, and rewrite and fit him into your agenda. As a matter of fact, one of the, the very chief reasons that the Jewish people and leaders rejected Jesus as their Messiah is because he didn't do what that tweet said. He didn't come to overthrow Roman rule. He, that, that wasn't his aim at that point at all. And they sought his execution in part because he had frustrated them because he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted some kind of political deliverer at that point. The fact of the matter is the Jewish people became highly offended when Jesus said, you know what your greatest problem is? It's not Rome, it's your sin. It's the fact that you have sin and you stand in opposition to your creator and you need to be right with him. And your religious system as you're practicing it isn't working. You need to come to me and believe in me. So, when we turn to John chapter 20 this morning, this, this book of the Gospel of John does not exist 
in a vacuum. There is no sort of rewriting the story of Jesus Christ. It is brought to us as historical fact, and in fact, just veer for just a second, because I think it's valuable for us to remember. There's, there's a fragment of a portion of John 18 in a museum in England that was found in Egypt, and the paleographers, the people who study this sort of papyrus, this material, and the style of writing say, well, this is from somewhere in the first half of the second century. And so that is within 100 years of the time of Christ, less than that, really, um, that there is already portions of the Gospel of John that have been spread as far as Egypt, that that has already been put into writing without the benefit of copy machines or any kind of digital help, all being done by hand, copied over and over again. And they find this from early in the second century. century later, there's, there's a full manuscript of the Gospel of John that was found in Egypt, early then in the third century. And so within 200 years of the life of Jesus Christ, this record that we read from was already being distributed throughout the known world. It was already in people's hands. So if you're going to claim that the Gospel of John is perhaps fantasy, it is perhaps the Christian church, centuries later, writing what it wanted Jesus to be and what they wanted him to say, then you have to be willing to take much of what we believe is ancient history and put it on the same shelf because scripture is more widely attested to in terms of quantity and age of manuscripts than any other ancient document. There are more fragments and pieces of manuscripts and full manuscripts that are older when it comes to the New Testament than any other historical document. That's just being factual. And that's, and that's important for this reason. If, if Jesus is simply teaching, this is how you be good people, this is just a nice biography, this is a good story, then that's one thing. But if, if, if the fundamental message from Jesus Christ is, you must believe in me. You must believe that I am who I say I am, that I did what I said I did, and that I have the power to give everlasting life then the historical element of that matters, that we believe that not only is Scripture true, but we see it even verified as the historical data is looked at. So believe in Jesus Christ. That's the call here, and it starts in verse 24. Thomas, John 20, verse 24, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So here John now sets the scene for what is the, this final part of his gospel, this conclusion that focuses all it in, on, on belief, and he brings to bear this, this guy named Thomas, one of the original 12 that Jesus called, now one of the 11. Judas is off the scene. He's referring back to what we looked at last week, that first day of the week when Jesus appeared in the room in Jerusalem and the disciples saw Jesus. Apparently Thomas was not there. And so sometime after that, the rest of the disciples say to Thomas, he's alive. We've seen Jesus. We've seen the Lord. And we get Thomas's reaction. Thomas gets maybe a bit of a bad rap. There's not any other of the disciples whose name sort of lingers on the way his does in terms of doubting Thomas that Webster's Dictionary defines as a skeptic, someone who refuses to believe something without proof. 
That is what Thomas did, but it's fairly narrow if that's all we say about Thomas, because the fact is, as one commentator points out, we should thank God that Thomas did the same reality check that most of us would have done under the very same circumstances. Had we been there and, and they told us that they had seen him, there's probably a fair chance that among us there'd be a number of us who would say, yeah, but I haven't seen him. And so Thomas is sort of giving us the, the, the evidence, if you will, allowing him to be used by God in this way to see Jesus alive. Thomas was bold. Thomas is, in his statement, not merely content to see Jesus, not simply to sort of lightly touch Jesus. Thomas is bold in this statement. He says that he wants to, uh, ESV here says, place his hand in, in, in the handprints, wants to touch actually where the nails went through, and he wants to place his hand in the side of Jesus where he was pierced. The, the verb there, the Greek verb that he used, is, is also has the idea of to throw. We, we translate it as to place, but if any of you can remember your old King James version of the Bible, it says, I want to thrust my hand into his side, and that probably captures the language that Thomas is using. He wants to handle Jesus. He wants to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is not a, a ghost or a manifestation, that this is real. This is the one who suffered and died. And in fact, he says, unless that happens, I will never believe. This is that same thing we've talked about in the Greek before, double negative, not like English, double negative is emphasis. I will certainly not ever believe, he is saying. Okay, so verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is now almost a replay of what happened on that first day of the week. We saw this last week when we looked earlier in chapter 20, when Jesus, on that first day of the week, the day of his resurrection, is now appearing in their midst on that night when the doors are locked. Eight days later, by Jewish reckoning, would have been the first day of the week again. Would have been all-inclusive of that first day up to this one. So eight days later, it's the first day of the week. The disciples are gathered, the doors are locked, and here is Jesus in their midst again. Let's give a little, little bit of deference to the disciples at this point. They are clearly still afraid of the Jewish authorities. We saw this in last week's passage um, that they feared for their lives. This is still a period of time between being with the physical Jesus Christ, resurrected in their presence, and the coming of Pentecost, which is when they receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So they're still in sort of this window where it's not the same. Jesus is not with them like he used to be. He's not, the Spirit's not with them as he will be. And so the fact that they are still fearful is probably somewhat explainable in terms of they are, they are still in kind of this window awaiting the fullness of God's Spirit. They are fearful, and Jesus appears. His immediate greeting to them is, Peace be with you. You don't need to be afraid. I am here. I am with you. Verse 27, Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There it is again. The focal point of the Gospel of John has been Jesus urging belief. Believe in me. And his whole point is not simply to prove that he's right, that he's there. His point to Thomas is, don't, don't be disbelieving. Believe in me. Go ahead. If this is what you desire, go ahead and touch me and see and believe. Uh, 
couple different important things that are going on here. One is it is a reminder of the omniscience of Jesus Christ, the all-knowing of Jesus Christ. There's no indication that after the other disciples told Thomas, hey, we've seen him alive, and Thomas said, nah, I'm not going to believe it, that they somehow went and found Jesus and said, hey, Thomas doesn't believe you need to show up. This is simply Jesus as God in flesh in his omniscience knowing Thomas's need. So when he comes and he speaks to that room, that is Jesus showing that he understood and knew Thomas's objection, even though he wasn't present to hear it. Second thing here is we clearly see that Jesus Christ was in bodily form. He was not a spirit being like a ghost. There's always some discussion about the resurrected form of Jesus Christ. He, he has a glorified spiritual body that we don't fully understand. Clearly, it's able to appear in rooms and pass through and, and just show up. But by the same token, that it's not a ghost, in the sense that he is still a body. He is still able to say to Thomas, go ahead. <laughs> you want to see and touch the wounds, you go right ahead and you can touch me because he is in a body. But the, the third thing that's so remarkable about this is just the display of Christ's grace toward Thomas. You and I, being in that position, might feel a little indignant at Thomas's doubting at this point. Jesus comes to meet Thomas's need right where he is. Here is Thomas confirmed in his skepticism, the one who said, unless I see it, I absolutely will not believe it, makes a demand to touch Jesus that really he doesn't deserve. He's got no right to claim this demand at this point. And yet Jesus in his kindness is there. The late James Boyce wrote, he who created us and has died to redeem us stoops to provide what we need. If you are a doubter, if you've thought a little about Jesus Christ, but you're still a skeptic and you're not entirely sure, I, I would submit to you that this, this passage is for you. It is God urging you to seek him, to confess your, your skepticism and your doubt, and to honestly be willing to pursue him, to know him, to understand him, to call out to him and say, I, I, I want to see, I want to understand, I want to understand from your word who you are. Let's face it, Jesus already knows your skepticism. You're not hiding anything from him, just like Thomas could not hide his skepticism from Jesus. He already knows. And he invites you to come and to see the good news and to read about him, to look at his life, just as Thomas did. Again, Boyce writes, come to him, ask for the evidence. You will find that God, who is far more anxious to reveal himself to you than you are to find him, will provide that revelation. Don't be arrogant about it. Don't, don't act as if you're somehow the final judge on the existence of Jesus Christ, but humbly come before him and, and ask, and ask to know him, ask to understand who he is. Verse 27, when, when Jesus Christ says, don't be disbelieving, but believe, it is as much warning as it is exhortation. It is, on the one hand, a, a warm exhortation that says, believe come to me in belief, but it is just as much a warning that says, don't be disbelieving. Don't remain in a state of unbelief. Come and read the truth and be invited to see who Jesus is. So verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That is a remarkable statement. Doesn't tell us, John doesn't say if 
if Thomas needed to touch Jesus any longer. It almost doesn't seem from the text as if he did. It, it, it looks like Thomas saw his Savior, saw the wounds of the Savior that he was bearing in his place, and he believed. Thomas is brought face to face with the Savior who suffered for him, whose hands were pierced with nails, whose side was pierced with a spear, and he saw that, and he is undone in that moment. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. This is probably one of the most profound confessions we see in the New Testament because here is a disciple of Jesus Christ standing in his presence and explicitly declaring that this man, Jesus from Nazareth, is God. That he is identifying Jesus for who Jesus has proclaimed himself to be throughout his ministry. All of Jesus' claims that came before were so clear that the Jewish leaders, the one point on which they could agree that Jesus was deserving of execution was on the charge of blasphemy. It's because he claims to be God. And here is Thomas. If indeed that is blasphemy, then Thomas is committing blasphemy because Thomas is now looking at this man and saying, my God, you are my Lord, my master, and my God. The risen Savior standing before Thomas was precisely who Jesus had claimed to be. God the Son. God the Son who left heaven, who took on flesh, who veiled the glory of God in that flesh, who came to live among men, and who then died on the cross. And Thomas now sees it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only a statement of Christ's victory over sin and death, it is a profoundly wonderful display of who Jesus is, that this is God who has been risen from the dead. As one writer puts it, Thomas's confession is the high point of John's gospel. Listen, there's, there's been all sorts of ways of people trying to address this statement by Thomas who are troubled by it and who don't want to confess that Jesus Christ is God. And so you've got from the the Jehovah's Witness argument that Thomas is looking at Jesus and he says, my Lord, and then he looks up to heaven and says, my God, as if he's now worshiping God. There's nothing in the text that, that grants us the ability to do that. Thomas is looking at Jesus as he says it. There's others who would say, well, this was just sort of an exclamation like we might say, my God, that it's just sort of his shocked sort of reaction, but he's not really calling him God. Listen, the, the, the fact that John doesn't explain this, that John sees no need to sort of belabor and say, and by the way, here's what Thomas meant by that, is because this is what John has been saying since the beginning of the Gospel of John, and this is what Jesus has been saying throughout his ministry. There's no need to sort of fill in some blanks here and say, wow, this is a remarkable confession. How did he get to this point? John has been telling us from the beginning that this is what Jesus has been saying, and now the beauty is one of his disciples now sees it. And he now confesses it and says, you are my master and you are my God. This goes all the way back to chapter 1 when John introduces Jesus and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is identifying Jesus Christ. He was preexistent God who now took on flesh and became a man. And so this confession is consistent entirely with everything Jesus has been saying. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is, this is Jesus first acknowledging Thomas's confession, commending, okay, good, you've seen and believe, but more importantly, Jesus is commending everyone else, you and I included, who comes to believe in Jesus Christ without the experience that Thomas had, without the physical presence and the visual sight of Jesus being able to see him as Savior, and, and Jesus is commending that. And John then follows that up when, when Jesus says this blessing, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is the perfect introduction to John now reminding us of, that's why I wrote. I wrote this book so that you, having not been able to see Jesus, might read this, my eyewitness testimony, so that you might believe who Jesus is and that by believing you might have life in his name. So, so John is just coming right off the blessing that is given that, Thomas, that, that Jesus speaks. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed and says, that's what I'm writing to you about. Over and over again, I have urged you in this, in this book to see Jesus for who he is because this is what he claimed. Exactly what Thomas confessed is what he claimed. Jesus over and over again said it. John 8.58 Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That is Jesus standing in front of a Jewish audience that knew that Abraham was, lived more than a millennia ago. And Jesus saying, I preceded Abraham. I, I was around before Abraham was around. Well, that's God. That is preexistent God. In, in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And what does the crowd do? They pick up stones because they know what he's claiming at that point. You can't stand there and say you and the Father are one unless what you're saying is that you're God. And they are prepared to kill him then. John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, his healing on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Here is John again saying to us, Make no mistake about what was happening as Jesus is interacting with the crowd at this point. He is putting himself on a par with God the Father, which can only be done if he's claiming to be God. And then to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, she says to him, I know that Messiah, the Savior from God, is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Those are just some of the verses. Part of what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this morning is that, that you are just thinking back through the Gospel of John and seeing all of these different records that we've looked at in the Gospel of John that keep pointing back to Jesus being abundantly clear in his teaching so that his audience knows he is claiming to be God. And so consequently then, if there are no signs, and that's what John points to in this last verse, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written, but these are written so that you may believe. What are signs? M miraculous acts. The, the, the things that Jesus did in front of them. If they are not there, if, if Jesus did not feed the thousands or give sight to the blind or cause the lame to walk or raise the dead or the, the greatest of all himself rising from the grave, 
without those, then what we've got is a rabbi from Nazareth who goes around and makes extraordinary claims. Then we've got sort of the, the, the modern sort of criticism of Jesus that some will make, and that he's just a good teacher. But John says, I've recorded not just the words of Jesus, but the signs so that you would see through those miracles a power that only God can do. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can make food in front of people. Only God can give sight to the blind. And the signs confirm the claims of who Jesus is, who he said he was, God in flesh, doing what he said he would do, dying for sinners and rising again, and the one who has the power to give everlasting life. And that, John said, that is the heart of my message. And he says, that's why I've written this. That's why this, this gospel of John is before us. That's the focal point. Here is what Jesus said. Here is what Jesus did. Now, even though you weren't there, unlike Thomas, who got to see it there in person, now you read it here, and he's urging us to believe it, that this is who Jesus is and what he's done. And John's gospel, when it finishes up, says, I want you to believe this, not just so that there's more believers, but he says at the very end in verse 21, that by believing, you may have life in his name. What does he mean by that? Same, same thing here we can do with what, what we've just done. We've just got to go back to Jesus' teaching. John is just rehearsing what, what he's already repeated many, many times. Jesus Christ talked about life over and over again, and he talked about two qualities of that life. And, and, and John doesn't need to relay them here because they've been said so many times. One is, it is eternal life. Time and time again, when Jesus speaks about life, he speaks about a kind of life that transcends the one we have here and now, one that goes beyond death. And so in John 5.24, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so when John says, I want you to believe these things so that you might have life in his name, he already has in mind that this would be eternal life, that this is life that is joined to Jesus Christ to the degree that you do not come under judgment, that you and I don't face the judgment we deserve for sin because Jesus has already taken that on himself. And so we have life that transcends this one and is forever in the presence of our God and our Savior in heaven before him. There is no judgment for those who are trusting in Christ. There is ongoing life for the soul in the presence of our Creator. And the second thing Jesus promised about that life, that, that John is, when he says, I, I want you to believe so that you might have life in his name, Jesus has already described that life as satisfying. He has described that as a kind, a, a, not just a quantity of life that goes beyond the grave, but a quality of life that is completely different from what we know apart from Jesus. A satisfying life, even while we live out our days on this earth and suffer and experience trials and are tempted and deal with sin. Jesus in John 10.10 said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus Christ has come to give us not just something that we look forward to, but something that we experience now, a peace and a strength and hope, and, and grace, and relationship with God that we don't have apart from Jesus Christ. 
He comes to give us that now so that even now when your marriage is strained or your job is aggravating or your kids are rebelling against you or your health is failing, he doesn't promise to take all those things away. What he promises is joy and strength and peace in the midst of that abundant life that even proceeds through this life now and only gets better when we ultimately stand in his presence. Jesus in his prayer to his father in John 17, defined what he meant by eternal life when he said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says eternal life is having an intimate knowledge of God, knowing God as Father, knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, knowing knowing what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ and what he's done and being able to partake of his grace and strength and wisdom and assurance. I'll end with a passage from Peter. Peter was often with John on these things, and Peter was writing later and wrote First and Second Peter, wrote to a suffering church. And in 1 Peter 1.8, Peter wrote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is, is amplifying the blessing that Jesus gave. When Jesus said, even for those, for those who haven't seen me, there is blessing on those who haven't seen and yet believe. Peter's now amplifying that and speaking to this suffering church saying, already now, you and I are experiencing salvation. The fullness of it will come one day when we stand in glory, but that doesn't diminish what we have now. We have joy and hope and peace now in Christ because of what he's done. Will you believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, God in flesh, the Son of God? Will you believe that he did what he promised he would do? And that is to give his life on the cross for sinners and to die in our place and to rise again. And believing that, then, will you believe that he is the one who gives eternal life? He is the one that has the power to give everlasting life to all who believe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for John's gospel. We thank you that this has been preserved for us and kept over the course of nearly 2,000 years, that this record has been, was penned and, and given for the benefit of the world to not only see who Jesus Christ is, but to be urged to understand the importance of seeing who Jesus is, that, that believing in him is a matter of eternal life and death. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning, anyone listening, watching this at a later time, Lord, that today would be the day that you would draw them, call them, open their eyes to see Jesus as the glorious Savior, as who he said he is, doing what he said he did, dying and suffering and rising again, victorious over death, and that Jesus gives everlasting life to all who trust in him. Father, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we we come to the end of John's gospel with such gratitude that in this book has been again and again just instruction to us, helping us to better understand the Son of God, helping us to see the Messiah, helping us to learn about Jesus and to see his sacrifice and to see his love for his people. Father, we pray that you would, for your people, 
renew our desire, spur us on to want to share these truths. That the things that we are reading in the Gospel of John, that we would not sort of hunker down in a locked room like the disciples might have wished to do, but that we would see the, both the joy and the, the challenge and the burden that it would be on our hearts of proclaiming to a lost world of skeptics and doubters that there is a great Savior in Jesus Christ, and to share not only our testimony but the truths of your word and who Jesus is and what he has done. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that as we go forward, we would, we would be walking in and experiencing the, the abundant peace and comfort and strength that you give to your children through your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.